Thanks for tuning in to MANA, a short daily meditation to feed hungry souls with God's Word. These episodes were prepared by ordained ministers for a radio broadcast called Voice of the Church and are now republished by the Reformed Perspective Foundation, a Canadian charity that applies biblical truth to the issues of our time. Here's today's serving. This week and the weeks that follow, we are going to enter into this beautiful book, but I want you to know even as we start this series that the Old Testament, including Ecclesiastes, cries out for a promised Savior. There's a longing for a Savior to a broken world. And so as we open our Bibles this morning, we need to know that Christ has come, of course, and he brings hope to this world. And now I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the middle of the Bible. And as you search for this book, allow me to say that I think this book, as you will see hopefully over the next number of weeks, is a very fitting word at this time in history. You see, this book addresses our cultural moment as if it were written only a few years ago. It cuts through the pretense, this book does, as you will see. It cuts through false security. It cuts through any kind of hope that we put in this physical world and exposes the idols of our lives. And this book shows us our desperate vulnerability to the imminent reality that we are soon to leave this earth, that we are soon to die. It seems as if we're living the dystopia that Hollywood may have thought was only pure fiction a few years ago. That's the world that we're entering and speaking about. This is the world that this text speaks into. And it's in this cultural moment you understand that we welcome the words of God's Spirit that we see in this book. And whether you are a follower of Christ, or maybe you have not yet accepted the truth claims of Christ, whether you're a secularist or whether you're young or old, male or female, this book asks questions that none of us can ignore. And if I were to simplify this book very briefly into one question, it would be this, why am I here? So this morning I want to focus under the main theme of why are we here to this theme, facing life's emptiness. And there are three things that we're going to draw from the text here this morning. Facing an all-important question. That's the first one. Here's the second. Facing an unstoppable cycle. And third, facing an unsatisfied heart. You see, in our postmodern world, we are obsessed with the question, how? How do I become a better speaker? How do I enjoy a better marriage? How do I get a degree in three years? But you have to understand that the all-important question that covers all of Scripture is not beginning with the word how, but the word why. What's the value or the purpose of my life on this side of eternity? Or as the preacher says, under the sun. And it shouldn't surprise you that to ask the question why is to awaken in us a God-given and needed curiosity. You see, children get that. They ask the question what? They begin there, what? And you answer, but they never stop there. Or rarely they will say, and what is it for? What's the purpose of this that you've just defined? Or maybe they'll ask the question, why? And you'll answer the one and only to receive another why. And then you will receive another why. You often come to the end of yourself. You're pushed into a corner. For that reason, so many people actually avoid the question why, especially in our modern world, because it's too difficult to answer. 
That's why he's approaching this question in that way. And the answer to the question of why is found ultimately at the end of the book. Answering the question why now informs the beginning of the book. The why is answered in who God is and how we ought to live before him at the end. But now that forms the beginning. And it's not surprising then that as we wrestle with this question why, that the author seems to be an aged man. I think the Holy Spirit makes it very clear that he wants us to know that it's the son of David who is king in Jerusalem. So it's most likely Solomon. It's not altogether important. But what's important is this, that by the Spirit of God, he wants us to travel down this road with him. But I think he has in mind people who are starting on this spiritual pilgrimage, in particular younger people. He begins in chapter 12. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And his conclusion at the beginning is that after he has seen and visited this life, he's understood that there is deep sense of meaningless in this life. He begins in verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And the word that's translated, and we're going to come back to this word quite often, is the word hevel. And the basic meaning of the word hevel is that it's like a bubble. It's like a vapor, a fog. I would connote that life has a high degree of emptiness in it. And some of you might know, and I draw this from the story of Abel and Cain. Some of you might know that the English word Abel comes from the Hebrew hevel. Maybe you know the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother, left him to rot, it seems, in a field out of pure jealousy. And can you imagine Adam and Eve finding their son in the field lifeless, 20 years, 30 years old? And they would have asked, what is the meaning of all of this? What's the purpose? Why, God? Why? Why? And they would struggle to find meaning and purpose in that. It seems like it's heavy. And yes, I believe Solomon is asking us to join on this spiritual journey because this emptiness ultimately does not have the last word. Because throughout the book, Solomon provides glimmers of hope. God is in control and providing purpose in your life. This is his journey that we're called to join. He begins then with this question, what do people gain from their labors at which they toil under the sun? What's the advantage of getting up every single morning, toiling all day, extremely exhausted by the evening, and going to bed and doing the same thing one day after another after another? I think you understand that this is a rhetorical question. He's not asking you to answer. And you see, radio broadcasters fed the lie that all we have to do is hold on for five miserable days until Friday comes. Then we could find meaning and enjoyment in life again. And then they would play the song from The Cure. I don't care if Monday's blue, Tuesday's gray, and Wednesday too. Thursday, I don't care about you. It's Friday. I'm in love. Heading to the beer store and drowning their lack of purpose in another tall boy or two or three. He says in verse 4, he says, Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And then in verse 11, he repeats that kind of like bookends to this poem that he's writing. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the relentless cycle of death. 
He says it even poetically. He says in verse 5, the sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. You have to understand that there's this inherent beauty in the relentless activity of God's good creation. God created it this way. And yet when you look at the sun, there's this inescapable repetition that knows no end. And tomorrow you will wake up and the sun will appear again. And in 20 years, unless the Lord returns, the cycle will continue. Have you ever stood at Niagara Falls and wondered where all this water was going? Do you know that there's 1.3 million liters a second that's flowing over the American and Canadian Falls? And if you were to come back in 30 years, save a catastrophic natural disaster or the return of Jesus, the water will still be flowing, probably at the same rate. And you're like, but why isn't the ocean ever being filled? The teacher is saying, you know, this created world is but a mirror of our living reality. It's something being filled and filled and filled and never satisfied. That's our reality. And the teacher's conclusion on all this is that all things are wearisome. More than one can say. And I wonder if you feel that wearisome in your heart because of your work or because of your day-to-day life. A kind of gnawing emptiness that you just can't seem to fill. Because we're called in this text as well to face an unsatisfied heart. Like the created order that seems never to reach a point of satisfaction, so to our hearts, the vehicle that takes in all these things that we want to fill our heart are our eyes and our ears. And that's where he goes. He says, the eyes never have enough of seeing, nor the ear it fill of hearing, in order to satisfy the deep recess of your heart. The eyes that have tried to be satisfied by the pleasures of this world, do you realize this, are the hungriest eyes? If you're hoping to be satisfied by your voyeuristic pursuits, your eyes will only become hungrier. Do you realize that? This is why the porn industry is a multi, multi, multi billion dollar industry because the eyes are never satisfied. And no less the ears. You see, our ears are tuned to receive the praises and the compliments of others. And tomorrow, you'll want to hear them again. And the teacher goes on. He says, there's nothing new under the sun. Then is there anything of which you can say, look, this is something new? When the iPhone first came out on the market, it was something new. When battery-operated cars entered into the market, it was something new. Just as combustible engines entered the market about 120 years ago, and it was something new. The teacher is saying that nothing that is new under the sun is able to pierce the monotony and the emptiness in your life. Because deep down in the recesses of the heart, every person on planet Earth has a conviction that there must be something more to life than all we can see and hear with our ears and see with our eyes. And in a hotel room in Toronto, these words were scrolled on a wall. Is all of life this empty? And I think those words are scrolled on the hearts of countless millions today, especially in a secular age. And yet I would argue that the longing is proof that there's something beyond the realm of what you can see and touch and hear. The teacher, you see, had this eureka moment as well. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, he says, These words, he has made everything beautiful in its time. 
He has also set eternity in the human heart. And this is the conclusion that we can already reach in chapter 1 as we enter this powerful book. That our deepest need cannot be met by the things that we see and hear and experience in this mortal life under the sun. God who created the cosmos has created a God-shaped vacuum in your life that only he can fill. Why am I here? And my people, he is saying right now, I know exactly what you need. You need some costly water. And I ask you this morning as we close off, if you know this water, if you've drunk this water, it's the gift you understand of a new life. It's a gift of life filled with purpose, with meaning, with hope, with eternity. It changes you, this gift, from the inside out so that your perspective on this world takes a radical transformation because it's impossible you understand to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction in all your toil apart from Christ. I don't know where you are at today in your faith life, but maybe today you need to get off the treadmill and say, Christ, I need you. I am sorry. Forgive me. Come in to live in my life and satisfy my deepest longing. He says, if only you will ask he will answer.